tonight we are looking at the Middle Ages, and I'm sure you have certain images in your mind when you hear that term, the Middle Ages. Sometimes it's been called the Dark Ages. It sure is a complex time in the history of the church, and some of the things that we'll look at tonight are just pieces of a very complex puzzle. And I'm in making choices in putting together our weekly study in this particular topic uh, that I've called time passages, um, it, it really it, it's really underselling the complexity when I take certain things and just kind of hold them out in front of you because it's a lot more complex than that, but we can't look at everything, nor would you want to look at all the different characters and different things that happen, but we're trying to see the big picture. And so tonight we're going to take a look at almost a thousand years of history uh, from 590 to 1517. That leads us up to the doorstep of the Reformation that we'll look at next week. This period of time, if you'll remember what we were talking about last week, we often think of Christianity, singular, uh, this one entity that uh, has many components uh, as part of it. But in reality, uh, it's better to say that we're part of Christianities, plural, because there's a lot of different elements and versions and differences of opinions that need to be ironed out. And sometimes you wonder whether some of the decisions that were made are decisions that uh, are really the best decision or whether it was just the majority decision? Uh, and what about some of those that were on the minority side that had legitimate points and, and that type of thing? When you add to that um, the interplay between um, religion and politics and all those type of things that we're especially going to see tonight— it can become very confusing in terms of why certain things were done the way they were done, why certain decisions were made. And um, all of it doesn't have to necessarily come down to what does the Bible say. It's rather this whole host of things that uh, involves uh, survival on one sense, as we'll see tonight, some of the shaping of Christianity was in response to some of the barbarian invasions that took place and so forth. So what I want to do tonight is take a look at this particular uh, period of time, and I've been giving you some images along the way. We started with the Last Supper. This particular image will show you uh, the king, will show you some of the bishops and other uh, people that are involved in what will eventually become kind of a feudal um, uh, society and different levels of people. And there's a reason for that. But if uh, I think some of the things that you see in this picture, whether it's the ball headed monk over here or the king over here or those that are submitting to the king, uh, all of these things, I think, we have seen along the way in some of the different artistry of the Middle Ages. Um, leading up to the Middle Ages is an important thing to keep in mind. So what I want to do for the first couple of minutes is kind of do a hinge between the era that we looked at last week and what we're moving into. And I'm calling these turning points. In the previous era, there was some very significant changes, and we don't need to go through this at length because that's on the previous studies. But I think it's good to keep in mind uh, what started out as a sect of Judaism is now established as a separate religion. Christianity started to evolve into uh, what I want to call proto-Orthodox, and that is, we talked a little bit about Orthodox and heresy, but proto-Orthodox is the idea that many of the decisions that were made uh, had to do with the majority view at the time, and a lot of that was um, 
pressured by the politics as well. We talked a little bit last week about Constantine and his conversion, whether it was real or whether it was delayed on his deathbed. What we find is that he basically takes a group of people that had periodic persecutions and then a bigger persecution under Diocletian and made Christianity kind of the state religion. Then came the theological debates, and we talked a little bit about um, this. Uh, these couple of councils, the Council of Nicaea and the Council of Chalcedon, and uh, these two gave to us a creed, uh, sometimes that uh, churches recite, uh, still recite within their worship experience, and these come out of the debate on how the nature of Christ works together, the divinity and the humanity. And how are these two things coming together, uh, which led to a lot of different opinions, and there are different offshoots of how they felt this, um, this unique individual that is both God and man, how, uh, how he relates in, uh, as a person that could be seen and heard and and that type of thing. And I think in if you read the uh, creedal statements of Nicaea and Chalcedon, what you'll find is it's even hard to understand because it's so minutiae in terms of trying to figure out what is the right view on this, um, that we are really dealing with a lot of mystery here. We're dealing with things that are far above our head. And so these are guesses at best. And yet the proto-Orthodox position is, this is what we're deciding is the Orthodox position that we are going uh, to uh, continue to say is the right view. And one thing that we didn't talk about last week, but it plays into this. Um, we, we, if we know anything about how the Bible is assembled, you'll know that it was a process. And actually, the finalization of the 39 books of the Old Testament and the 27 books of the New Testament, they are not finalized until right around this same time, uh, into the fourth century. And um, a, lot, a lot of times we don't think in those terms. We think of especially the New Testament, all these churches collected these scrolls, copied these scrolls, and they had their own kind of New Testament. That's not really an accurate picture. The other thing that's important to keep in mind is how these books were chosen. Uh, we've talked a little bit about Apocrypha. We talked a little bit about Pseudepigrapha, different writings that would use the name of some of the apostles to, um, to communicate their work. Actually, the 27 books of the New Testament is only about a third of the writings um, that could be studied, uh, and the decision upon those books had a lot to do with reinforcing what they already decided were the orthodox positions in the Council of Nicaea and Chalcedon. So uh, many of the books that are not chosen to be kept as part of the canon of Scripture is because they differentiate a little bit on some issues regarding Christ and this whole idea of how he is fully God and fully man. And uh, they got rid of, or at least uh, did not accept as inspired, those books that had a differing viewpoint. So it gets complex. The other thing that we began to see last week is the rise of the papacy. And we'll see more about that um, in our time tonight. But it's important to understand that bishops played a real important role, not only in these councils, but also in designating what they felt was heresy. And so sometimes bishops were often called her uh, heresyologists, that they are individuals that are deciding uh, who's in and who's out in their particular uh, viewpoint of doctrine. So last week we said that these are the key assertions regarding Christ, that he is true God from true God, that he was of the same substance as the Father. He is begotten, not made. Uh, that's, there's a difference of language there that gets real 
complex. He's not created, but he's begotten. And then uh, that he became human for our salvation. Now, what's interesting as we move into tonight is on the rise is monasticism. Uh, monks and monasteries become important during this uh, time because I think uh, monks began to see this merging of religion and political alliances, and they kind of withdrew, sort of like John the Baptist withdrew uh, in his day uh, to become a part of the Essene community that we have talked about on and off. So those are the turning points, but probably the biggest one as we move into tonight is the coming of the barbarians. Now, the barbarians is a word that describes those that are non-Roman. Uh, the Roman Empire is ruling, and by the time you get to 476, you're going to find really kind of the end of the Christian Roman Empire, and tonight we're looking at the Middle Ages, which means there's a lot of things that are changing, and the long line of Roman emperors ends, and what we find happening is even Rome is sacked in 410 A.D., uh, Rome is no longer the capital, and the Romans called those that they had to fight against uh, barbarians because they didn't know one of two languages, Greek or Latin, but they had all kinds of different looks, and this particular artist's rendition that you're looking at right here will represent everything from kind of Attila the Hun to Germanic tribes uh, to uh, Goths and Vandals. Uh, that were all a part of trying to overtake the Roman Empire. We're familiar with some names. Attila the Hun was a very aggressive and a violent uh, leader. Uh, others, not as much. And yet at the same time, I'm going to show you a map uh, to show you how complex this is. When the barbarians begin to invade the Roman Empire, um, their arrival causes such upheaval that um, the Romans had to figure out a way to fight all of these people. So take a look. Let me uh, show you this map here. Uh, you'll see up at the top, <laughs> the, it involves uh, Vandals and Scots and Burgundians and Huns. And look at all these lines of the different um fronts upon which the roman empire had to fight some of these um these barbarians that are coming in so notice over here though the eastern empire is still part of the roman empire but remember that um the church is kind of dividing between the east and the west and constantinople you do not see uh, the invasion of the East, uh, which becomes the Orthodox side of the church. Uh, this is also called the Byzantine Empire. But boy, look over here where Rome is and look at all the movements that are taking place from the Franks to the Burgundians that are all making their invasions into the Roman Empire all the way down into Spain and uh, up into France and England uh, and so forth. So the idea there is not to try to de uh, disentangle all these lines. I just want you to kind of see what the Roman emperors were dealing with as they moved into this particular time. So hopefully that makes sense uh, to you that it's a very turbulent time. It is a time when uh, Rome will no longer be the capital of the empire, even though Rome is still kind of considered the eternal city, the city that um, holds the papacy and the leadership of the church. So let me bring everybody back up for a second here. Um, any questions on this so far? So here's what happens. Almost by necessity, um, the Pope becomes a political uh, figure as well. So in 590 AD, Rome is, is in a world of hurts. 
Um, they had floods. They had these wars. They had a form of the bubonic plague uh, that was going on that took a lot of the lives of their citizens. Uh, the Tiber River flooded um, and damaged a lot of the granaries. So there was even uh, uh, famine and food shortage and all that type of thing. And the Pope at the time when all this was going on was Pope Pelagius. And um, he dies as a result of uh, the plague. And he needs to be replaced. And there is a guy by the name of Gregory that's elected Pope in 590. And he's an individual that steps in to a very difficult situation. Uh, and what we would what we find is that he is an individual that now will have to kind of unite the empire together in light of all of these troubles. And there's a legend that says that he had an appearance of the Archangel uh, Michael and that things began to turn a little bit and Rome was kind of like a phoenix that's starting to come up out of the devastation that it's experiencing. Um, he was an individual that knew that um, the mission of the church would need to reach a new group of people. And so one of the things that he did was lead a large-scale mission from Rome into various territories where there was an ethnic group known as the Anglo-Saxons. And many of them come to faith. Um, these are individuals that um, help kind of sustain uh, the papacy uh, at, at the time. And I think Gregory's importance, it will be noted here in the next slide. But I think what's important to keep in mind here is when the city and the empire is going through all of this, one of the things that they did was they would hold uh, uh, processions to St. Peter's Basilica on a regular basis to ask uh, the Virgin Mary uh, for her protection over them. And when things began to turn, they began to think that the wrath of God had been turned away from them, that somehow up to that point they were experiencing the chastisement of God. And I think a lot of times that's what people think when they go through something very severe. Why is God allowing this? Why is God punishing me? Those type of things. So Gregory is very important. And he will play an instrumental role in even the way the Catholic Church will conduct its worship. Uh, he will be a reformer of the worship style of the Catholic Church. I'm sure most of you have heard of the phrase Gregorian chants, right? Well, that comes from this Pope, Pope Gregory, and he is also called uh, Gregory the Great. Um, he's an individual, though, that's given that title after he dies. He he serves the church for about 30 years. He dies in 604, and he, at that point, has been deemed as God's consul, that is, God's point man. And so all of this is kind of building, I think, of the importance of the Pope. And I think even to this day and age, when you think about how the Pope speaks kind of ex cathedra, in other words, um, makes a claim upon, upon something that it's coming straight from God because the Pope is God's counsel, God's uh, way of communicating to man. So he's an individual that was initially a monk, but he had some real leadership abilities. And through those leadership abilities, he was able to kind of reestablish order, and he was an individual that was relied upon during these troublesome times, and he's an individual that was a good administrator, too, and that allowed him to kind of set up this mission to the Anglo-Saxons, and uh, that proved to be a very important part of the church being able to maintain, even though at um, 
at a point in time, Rome is sacked by these barbarians. Um, as you might know, the Roman Empire controlled extensive amounts of land, uh, all the way from India to Britain. Um, and they looked not only to the king, but also to the papal chair as a way of, um, of uh, uh, causing people, how do I want to put this, uh, to defend their faith as well as their land. And he saw himself as a defender of orthodoxy, the, the truth, the one way that the church is going to look at uh, doctrine and so forth. So a uh, good person to keep in mind, Gregory the Great. Any thoughts, questions, comments? Now, at the same time, um, we fi find the rise of Islam starting. That will be another problem. Um, it's further to the east. It's not uh, where the barbarians are invading right now, but uh, further to the east, uh, there is a man by the name of Muhammad. He lives from 570 to 632. He's an individual that um, said he had a vision from the angel Jabril, in other words, Gabriel, around 610. And the angel told him that he is a prophet, that he is God's messenger, or uh, within Islam, the title is a Razul. Uh, he is the Razul, the last prophet and the greatest prophet uh, uh, for humanity. Islam is a very complicated religion, but it's built upon some fundamentals. And the prime fundamental is uh, the name Islam means submission to the will of God. And that's the primary emphasis of it, to be submitted to the will of God. And you can do that through obedience, uh, to revelation, through prayer, um, through good works, almsgiving, um, reverence, those type of things. However, when you look at Islam, what you're looking at is something more than a religion. It is also a political and cultural force as well. Islam, out of Judaism, Christianity, and, uh, and, Ju and Islam, it is the most strict of all the religions. Uh, it, it holds to monotheism, although Islam would suggest that um, Christians are not monotheists. They are tritheists. They believe in three gods, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Their belief is that there's only one true God, Allah, and uh, devotion for Allah um, is first and foremost, and therefore there's hostility toward any hint of uh, polytheism, so they don't look favorably upon Christianity because of tritheism, and idolatry. Now, after he receives this vision um, from Gabriel, or Jabril, um, he is run out of town. He is born and in the city of Mecca, but he has to flee down to a second important city in Islam, uh, Medina or Medina. And uh, there he's going to be in retreat for a number of years until he gathers enough followers where he feels he can go back to Mecca. And he does so in 629. Um, as he goes back, what's going to happen now is... Islam is more than an individual um, that has received some type of revelation from God. It is a, um, a political and uh, spiritual and ethical um, uh, way of life. And, and so within Islam, the thinking is uh, there is no division between religion and state. Okay, so within Christianity, we sometimes talk about uh, the separation of church and state, right? You don't find that in Islam. And so there is this merging, and since Muhammad is um, the last prophet, uh, upon his death, what are they going to do? 
Well, they have to find a successor, and in Arabic, it's called a caliph. And uh, so there would be these uh, these individuals that would carry on after Muhammad's death. So it doesn't die, obviously, after his death. And there's no resurrection uh, that would cause people to continue to communicate the story because it's not built upon one miracle of resurrection like Jesus. It's built upon uh, this political and um, philosophical system that then will cause them to turn and begin to take over certain parts uh, of the world. And you can see them listed there within 10 years. That's a fast time. Within 10 years, uh, Islam had taken over Syria, Palestine, Egypt, Armenia, Iraq, and Iran. Can, that, 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 is a, that is some doing there. So the spread of Islam will also make its way into Egypt and North Africa. Um, and these are the areas which uh, Christianity isn't real strong. Christianity is strong in the West over by Rome. And you have the Orthodox section of Christianity in the East. But you, it's not as strong in Africa. Uh, and and some of these other Arab areas. So the rise of Islam uh, happens quickly. And at the same time, you have these divisions between the Eastern and Western side of the church. And I'm gonna tell you about some of the things that, that they argued about here in a couple of moments, but um, you go, oh my goodness, this has weakened the church. And as a result of that, Islam captured the attention of people and um because of its devotion because of its i i don't want to say simplicity because it's not a simple religion but at least if you do these five practices with is in uh, in islam you can be a good uh adherent of islam that type of thing so any anything you want to bring up at this point before i go to the next slide So the, the people of the Islamic world do not take them to be like uneducated barbarians. I do need to say this, that during this time of the rise of the Islamic empire, um, a lot of very sophisticated world culture um, is taking place, centers of science and and different things that are developing. So I think a lot of times when we think of Islam within our own context, we think of like backward countries, okay? Um, Afghanistan or something. And in reality, it, it is a very sophisticated development of culture. And uh, even in parts of the world today, um, if, if you don't keep your eyes solely on the war that we had with those that are hiding out in caves in Afghanistan, you'll find that Islamic cultures are sophisticated um, and in some ways they're ahead of us on some things. In some ways we're ahead of them in the as far as West, uh, Western culture. But so we need to remember that when scholasticism begins to make its move in the Middle Ages on uh, on behalf of the Christian side, um, this is also happening within Islam as well. That makes sense, everybody? So now in the early part of the Middle Ages, um, you do see some advancements taking place in Christianity. Uh, England to Russia, Scandinavia, Hungary. Um, some of these areas are are uh, becoming Christian, and and it's taking a while, but it's a, and it's a slow process. But the church is starting to evangelize some of the barbarian tribes as well. And um, about this time, um, there is this um, merging 
of the Pope and the King under a guy by the name of Charlemagne. I'll show you uh, his picture here in a second. So over in the East, you see Muslims and Islam growing. They're pushing westward a little bit into North Africa, making their way into Palestine as well. And the emperors of the East um, and West, uh, they're, they're kind of in a rift between the Eastern side of the church and the Western side of the church. And um, first thing that they are trying to do is kind of, at least on the Western side of the church, is to civilize the barbarians. So it, this is the era when it's not only a focal point upon the Pope, but there is a focal point upon the beauty of the cathedrals. So this is the Canterbury Cathedral uh, picture. You see the beauty. I mean, it's just gorgeous. And um, so there is this civiliz uh, uh, civilizing the barbarians. There's this movement of power and growth in Christianity. It's reflected in a lot of the very complex uh, structures that are built that take years and years and years to build. And they're still standing, even to this day. They're, uh, it's amazing. So you can see here on here, by the end of the sixth century, Christian church remained largely in the Mediterranean area of the old Roman Empire. You can see the East and the West, uh, they're slowly starting to drift apart. And as they are drifting apart, um, some of the reasons that they are drifting apart, we will scratch our head at, uh, at times. Um, one of the things that they were ab arguing about was the West in Rome felt that within the, uh, within the sacrament of communion, you must use unleavened bread in the East. Uh, it doesn't matter whether the bread is leavened or unleavened. Um, they began to uh, see and argue about the head of the church being the Pope in the West versus patriarchs um, over in the East. Um, in the West, um, they believed in unmarried priests, um, celibate priests. In the East, uh, priests could be married. So there's a lot of little things that are going on here. Uh, there's some disagreements about the role of the Holy Spirit, whether the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father or from the Father and the Son. So there's other councils we won't get into that's debating some of these type of things as well. And as we look back on it, at least as I look back on it, <clears throat> I go, a lot of these little things split a church right down the middle. And um, by 1054, um, it's, there's, it culminates in what's called the Great Schism. The Great Schism. Uh, these two will never be fully reconciled. And so... Uh, one half is the Roman Catholic Church. The other half is the Eastern Orthodox Church, even in our day and age. Uh, so now in the West, you have all these barbarians. What are you going to do with them? Well, you need to educate them. So it's interesting that the church became the fountainhead of uh, education and social services. So you'll find in the West, a lot of things develop like uh, universities, hospitals. Some of those the uh, type of things are being developed as all a part of what was needed to continue to reach these barbarian people. And um, it's fascinating that Gregory the Great also uh, uh, said that we're not going to tear down the heathen temples. But what we're going to try to do is refurbish them for places of worship uh, for uh, Christ. So he's an individual that 
is beginning also to accommodate, I guess you might say, the barbarians when you don't tear down their places of worship and replace them with grand cathedrals like you see here in Canterbury, um, it kind of placates some of the barbarians. That That's part of their culture. It's part of their um, uh you know their their culture and their their love of different things and so gregory began to use uh, even some of the heathen temples pagan temples um as a way of reaching barbarians and conver converting these people there was a monk um that gregory sent out his name is augustine now this is not the same augustine we looked at before that was augustine of hippo this is augustine that uh, is sent out on a mission to the Anglo-Saxons, and he accomplishes uh, converting King Ethelbert of, K of Kent up in England, and that becomes the means whereby uh, the resources are provided to build this grand cathedral in Canterbury. And this place here, Canterbury, for over 1400 years would be the seat of the archbishops um, uh, in in that part of uh, the empire. So um, jump in here. I, I'm speaking only from book work. I, I haven't seen any of this firsthand, but if if you any of you have been any of these places and wanna uh, say anything about them, please do. Okay, the big issue is a search for unity. How are you going to get these uh, these uh, people together and so forth? Uh, kind of moving ahead here, um, even after Rome was conquered, um, there there were some different people that came along that played an instrumental role in carrying on the Christian tradition. So look here at the middle section of this slide. In 799, Pope, Pope Leo III uh, was convinced he needed help in reaching the barbarians. So he appealed to a guy uh, that was called Charles the Great. Charles the Great. This uh, ruler uh, would be given a French name uh, Charlemagne. Uh, so Charles the Great and Charlemagne are the same individual. So in December uh, AD 800, the king uh, brings together a large assembly of bishops, um, and they're conversing on how they can unify the empire. And on Christmas Day, Charlemagne, or Charles the Great, came to St. Peter's and um, cathedral, and there you find Leo is saying mass. He's singing mass, actually. And Charles comes, and he bows down in front of the crypt of St. Peter. And as he does so, Leo, the pope, places a golden crown on the head of King Charles and crowns him as the ruler and calls him augustus we've seen that before in the new testament right caesar augustus the 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 highest authority so now you're seeing how religion and politics are i mean they're getting tighter and tighter together now he will go back and draw upon augustine not the one that we just mentioned uh, in the last slide that went up to Canterbury, but Augustine of Hippo, remember, wrote a book called The City of God. And the, he said that there are two cities. And the one city, the city of God, is the one that we are to build. And Charles the Great, or Charlemagne, grafted that concept and said that the church is building the city of God. And he is going to push for a universal Catholic church and um, try to bring it together to build the kingdom of God. So here is Charlemagne, okay? 
So um, these portraits obviously represent the era, uh, not necessarily the facial features uh, are being exact. But Charlemagne, uh, great military conqueror, and he decides, remember like Constantine before him, he uses the um, imagery and the symbolism of Christianity to his advantage. And that's what Charlemagne does as, as well. And, and what he does is he begins to persecute people who do not now bow the knee to Christianity. So this is an actual quote out of one of his capillaries. Uh, Any unbaptized Saxon who tries to conceal the fact uh, from his fellows and refuses to accept baptism shall be put to death. So if you have a different viewpoint on Christ, you are subject uh, to uh, persecution, imprisonment, and martyrdom. So now this alliance between popes and emperors um, is kind of one hand washing the other, even though at the same time they resented each other. Isn't that kind of typical, right? So one wants more power than the other, and the Pope and Charlemagne are two individuals that want to be the highest authority. Charlemagne wanted all the people in the empire to worship in one language. So in 781, he asked Pope Adrian to give him a sacramentary, which is a book with all the text of the liturgical prayers, uh, the way to do the Eucharist and all that to be translated into Latin. So for uh, many hundreds of years, you've heard of the Latin mass, right? Okay. That's where this begins is with Charlemagne. Uh, even, even until recently, um, you know, in the last uh, few decades and stuff like that, um, you know, there were still, and I'm sure there still can be found some masses that are still do done in Latin to this day. But it's fascinating here he sees it as a unifying force, right? And as he does so, he insists now not on individual conversions to Christ, but mass conversions, as well as if there are people that don't want to convert to Christ, there are also mass uh, slaughters as well of those people. Now, we can't look the other way on this. In the history of the church, there we will condemn kind of what we see happening within the religion of islam you know the the hand of uh of violence that's often done even against their own people who want to pursue justice or or those type of things that's happened in our own history as well and i think it's important to understand that's why a lot of what these years are are called the dark ages is because of a lot of these things that are happening uh at the hands of the of the leaders of both um the empire and the church as well thoughts i know this is a lot to take in again big picture that's all i hope you're beginning to just get a feel for the big picture of things. Okay, so what happens? Well, because of all the barbarian invasions, a lot of people were at risk of losing their home and losing their land. And within a few decades of Charlemagne's death, um, there was all of these aggressive attacks uh, from the Muslims and Slavs and Magyars and Vikings and uh, just, uh, it, you know, it's hard to imagine. Well, these people are in jeopardy because they're about to lose their lands. So there was a system of, of a covenant relationship between different stratas of society um, that's called feudalism. 
and the king is at the top, but do you see who's right below the king? The bishops. Then you have barons and lords, the knights who are going to fight on behalf of these people down here, the peasants, uh, the fiefs, and those type of individuals that are doing the work. They're working the land, uh, all that type of thing. So look over here on this slide. Feudalism became the dominant social system in mid medieval Europe in which the nobility held lands from the crown in exchange for military service, and vassals were in turn tenants of the nobles, while the peasants were obliged to live on the Lord's land and give him honage labor and share their produce in exchange for military protection. So uh, have any of you heard of, in the Old Testament, in the book of Deuteronomy, the book of Deuteronomy is called sometimes the Suzerain Vassal Treaty. Have you ever heard of that statement before? Suzerain Vassal Treaty? The suzerain, the king, is going to provide and protect uh, the people in exchange for their honor, their, uh, their service, uh, that type of thing. So think about the how the book of Deuteronomy, at the very end, chapters 28 through 32, there's this covenant that is made between the people of Israel and God. And God is the suzerain vassal who is going to do certain things. And he says this, and this is in the book of Deuteronomy, if you obey me, I will bless you. But if you disobey me, not talking to individuals, he's talking to the group of people, the Jewish people. If you disobey me, there are certain consequences that are called curses. So if you want to find a parallel, I guess, between feudalism and some things you see in scripture, you can see some parallels a little bit in the book of Deuteronomy, where there's the second giving of the law of Moses, and uh, there is this uh, covenant treaty that's kind of set up between each other um, for mutual benefit. So now here you have a political structure, a societal structure, from the most powerful down to the least powerful, and here's the church that's in the middle of it. There is as much a part of medieval life and this structure as uh, the average citizen. And the Pope is kind of seen up here with the king, and the bishops are right below him. So the thing I want you to think about is the amount of power that the Pope held during these days. And of course, then there's this whole theological end of things that will lead into the Reformation, the threat of hell, uh, the threat of judgment, um, using indulgences, we'll talk about this next week, using indulgences as a way of getting uh, your loved one out of purgatory and that type of thing. All of that is in development in this particular time period. Any thoughts? Now, two things to keep in mind here. When we pray the Lord's Prayer, one part of it says, thy kingdom come, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So during the second, uh, 12th and 13th century, the papacy feels it's their job to develop a perfect society on earth. Isn't that what you pray in the Lord's Prayer? You've never gone to a Roman <clears throat> Catholic uh, service where the Lord's Prayer is not recited. It's always a part of the liturgy. That's also true in Methodism, Presbyterianism, Lutheranism, um, and, you know, and so a key part of that is, uh, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Well, the Pope, uh, began to use different things at his disposal as a way of coercing people to become Christian with the ultimate goal of bringing the kingdom of God to earth. Well, what did he use? Well, he used this belief in heaven and hell as a as political leverage. And he used fear 
as a way of getting people to cooperate. If they didn't cooperate, uh, they used a thing called excommunication. Uh, you're, you are excommunicated from the church. Well, how are you ever going to be saved from hell if you're excommunicated from the church? So you can see this, this working of fear in the minds of people. So excommunication was done to individuals. However, the, on a national level, if other nations did not agree with where the Pope was taking the church, he could put what is called an interdict upon a whole nation, which means that he had the power to suspend worship and withhold the sacraments uh, for that group of people. So the Pope has a lot of power. He's trying to bring heaven to earth. He is going to give God the glory through the building of these massive cathedrals. Uh, so these different cathedrals are supposedly uh, bringing the glory of God in heaven down to earth. And it played a practical role as well. A lot of times in the Middle Ages, people did not know how to read or write. So how would they know the stories of the scripture? Ah, through stained glass, through carvings. Um, a person could walk into worship and they could get the gist of the stories of the scripture through the window panes and through the carvings in the wood. And so that's why these places are so beautiful. I mean, they're just exquisite pieces of art. Um, and so here we find the Pope is being kind of acknowledged, going back to this, as kind of the feudal Lord, if you will. It's not just the king, it's also the Pope that's kind of the feudal Lord over the pyramid below them. So, as you know, last year, last summer, Hesty and I had the privilege for our 40th anniversary to uh, go on a bus tour through Europe. And one of the places uh, that we went was through uh, France. This is Paris. This is the uh, Cathedral of Notre Dame. Um, you'll remember a few years back, <laughs> excuse me, um, it caught fire. Do you remember seeing, uh, did you watch any of that footage uh, when uh, Notre Dame was on fire? Well, they're in the process of rebuilding that and they're hoping that it would uh, will be finished before the Summer Olympics because the Summer Olympics are being held in Paris. And you can see a crane back here. They're still working on it and stuff. Uh, but here's what I want you to see. The beauty of this uh, building, I want you to see how long it took to build this. So it was built between 1163 and 1250. Okay. That's a lot of years, isn't it? 1163 to 1250. And um, uh, we did not go into this. We walked uh, we walked around and saw it uh, alongside the river here. This picture I took was on uh, on a boat that was going down the river and and uh, but it's it's one of those just gorgeous scenes. So thy kingdom come. The other thing that's important in this, is the idea of taking up the cross. Um, there is this idea of uh, uh, taking up the cross of Christ is part of what he called his disciples to do. So how are you going to do that? Well, resorting to violence uh, is always kind of mankind's natural uh, way of going. And here's where the Crusades uh, start to come in to the history of the church. Uh, their main goal is try to expel Muslims from the land that they captured, especially the Holy Land. There's a bunch of different motives as to why uh, different people would march in the Crusades. Uh, sometimes it was out of religious uh, devotion. Sometimes it was out of the love of adventure, but a lot of it was out of a dream of making um, making a profit and making money out of it. 
The word crusade actually comes from the idea of taking up the cross and following after Christ. And so this is kind of a new kind of war that's starting to develop during this time. And the thing I think's important to see here is this is not just a um, an attack against Muslims. There is some attack against Jews and even against some non-Orthodox Christians as well. So, I mean, the violence is spread around a little bit. So you go to this, you see, this is where a lot of that medieval knight uh, look and uh, the sword and the shields and all that type of thing take place. So the Crusades take um, take up about 200 years of church history from uh, uh, 1096 to 1300. And um, the Crusades were military expeditions. That's what they were at the at the request of the papacy uh, to go into these lands. Uh, these individuals um, would resemble very closely to what Muslims within their religion call a jihad, okay, to go in and to get rid of those who are infidels. And uh, so what's happening here is um, there are these, there's these power structures in place, and these power structures are sending armies uh, in various places. Um, here's a, a picture again. Not that you're going to remember this, but there are here are the first four crusades. So beginning in 1096 through 1204, I think uh, scholars say that there were seven crusades in total, and um, and these are the first four. But look at all of the places that they travel in their in their quest, in their desire to recapture territory and stuff. So it looks like spaghetti, doesn't it? I mean, it's it's all over the map. Um, but the, the thing that was the most important is this one, this area down here, the Holy Land. And uh, the Holy Land is to recapture, especially Jerusalem, right? And so here are some numbers. Um, that might help you get a concept of what these crusades look like. Um, all in all, in 1097, there were 4,000 knights assembled in the capital of Constantinople, as well as 20,000 soldiers. That's that's huge. Can you imagine the amount of uh, people that are marching across the land and so forth? Um, so in 1099, they march on Jerusalem, and they started to massacre, obviously, Muslims, Jews also. But here's a third target. Arab Christians are uh, part of the target as well. So in some ways, you see kind of an ethnic cleansing taking place um, of these types of people. And so there's a lot of dark elements to the history of the church. And at the same time, there is, um, what time you got over there, Rusty? Okay. Just a couple uh, more uh, ideas and then we'll be done. Scholasticism is starting to rise up as well during this era. And uh, this type of learning uh, in many ways came out of some of the cathedrals that also served as uh, universities. I think I mentioned that earlier tonight. Uh, and their task was to try to understand universal truth, which obviously brought into play uh, philosophy and so forth. So as the Crusades are trying to extend the authority of God across the land, universities are trying to uh, understand the truth of God, not only in the Holy Land, but from all lands as well. And there's a guy that you should probably be aware of. His name is Thomas Aquinas. He's a, 
very famous individual that uh, wrote a massive volume. And you can see a picture of, uh, or again, an illustration over here on the right of Thomas Aquinas. Um, he wrote a, a, uh, a, a material that's called Summa Theologica. And um, his one of the things he tried to do in this is he really did believe that by use of reason, you can prove the existence of God. And um, coming up behind him was a guy by the name of Peter Lombard. And um, through Aquinas and Lombard, um, that's where you get this idea of seven sacraments. So you may have heard of that in uh, Roman Catholic theology, and here they are, the seven sacraments, baptism, confirmation, the Lord's Supper, penance, extreme unction, marriage, and ordination. And um, those seven sacraments kind of begin to, to uh, form within this era of time, and uh, here's a guy who was brilliant, Thomas Aquinas, that kind of gave rationale to a lot of these things in, in this work here. Summa Theologica. Okay, so last slide I want to show you tonight. This is not the great schism between the Eastern Church and the Western Church. There's another schism that takes place only on the Western side of the church, and it's called the Western Schism, and um, what we find is that for a period of time, the, uh, the seat of the papacy was no longer in Rome, but they moved the seat of the papacy to France. And you can see 1309 to 1377, uh, that is not the seat of the papacy uh, in Rome. It's in Avignon. And what we find is that um, they wanted to get the uh, seat of the papacy back into Rome because it's the eternal city, right? It's uh, uh, the place where uh, Peter's uh, Basilica is. So Gregory XI returns to Rome in 1377, and he ends this French papacy. And the Romans um, wanted to make sure that the next pope that was going to rule from Rome was a Roman individual, not a, a different uh, ethnicity. So there's this guy by the name of Urban VI, who's an archbishop, that is elected as pope in 1378. And um, he was a temperamental kind of guy. Uh, outbursts of anger. There's a lot of suspicion around him. And he was making some decisions that those who elected him as pope regretted. So they decide that they're going to elect a different pope, Clement VII as a rival pope. So now you got two popes <laughs> in the Western side of the church. And you also have uh, what you might consider kind of a pope over on the Eastern side of the church as well. So uh, at one time in church history, you had three popes. <laughs> so they had to remedy that. So what they did is, what do they? how do they remedy th these things? Church councils, right? So they bring together all the bishops and leaders and, and so forth. And uh, what they do is they they convene a council and they finally elect uh, John the twenty uh, third in fourteen fourteen, and uh, then excommunicated the other popes from from the church. And so all of these type of things are a struggle for power and unity. And uh, and so what we finally see is that the schism is finally resolved at a council called Constance. Uh, and it was a two-year council from 1414 to 1418, uh, a four-year council, uh, not two, uh, four years, 1414 to 1418. And uh, finally, after that council, uh, Pope Martin V is elected uh, and he's going to reign from Rome. And that's going to start to lead us into the period of the Reformation that we'll talk a little bit about next week. So let me, uh, let's, uh, 
stop the share for a moment and see if you have some thoughts, some questions, comments. I hope you just kind of get a feel for things didn't come out of the blue. A lot of the things, the effects uh, that we see, even in Christianity, go back thousands of years and they linger uh, a long, long time. And of course, they're changed over time as well in different ways. But um, but that gives you some feelings for the foundations of it. Mm-hmm. Some thoughts, some comments, questions, clarifications, anything that might be of help? It's very interesting, Larry. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, the average churchgoer doesn't even know kind of the thumbnail of a, a lot of the history of the church. And so it's kind of like, why do we do, or why do, why do they do things the way they do? And there's reasoning behind a lot of it. There really is. So hopefully that will help. Yeah. Our, when we lived in the UK, our little village wasn't real far from Eli, Eli, Eli. And they have, um, a famous cathedral there, the Ely Cathedral. And while you were talking, I looked it up and it was built in the late, started in the late 900s. Wow. Wow. And if... Was that a big cathedral for a small... Yeah, it's it's, it's pretty big. Hmm. And if I'm wrong, bud, tell me. But I remember in one of the places we visited, and I think it was Ely, there was a hole right at the top. It must have had glass on it, otherwise rain would have come in. But it let the light in, and it shone down. Do you remember that? No? It shone down in a big spotlight when the sun was out, you know, like uh-huh. light coming down from God. Yeah, yeah. Well, in a lot of cathedrals, even the structures themselves have symbolism built into it. Oh, yeah. Like, you know, the form of a cross or a rose window represents something, mm-hmm. you know, where Esty works has a lot of that symbolism in that structure down there. But it's fascinating to see. I mean, it's just beautiful, beautiful structures. Mm-hmm. And it's all around the world, really, different places mm-hmm. uh, that you can find a lot of these places. But some mm-hmm. of these that were built, like you said, the one that you saw in that village, gosh, that was the Middle Ages. It and, was. Well, and, yeah. our town, our village, Sawston, went back to the 500s. Yeah, Wow. And it's still standing and, and, you know, it's, it's amazing. It really is. Mm-hmm. Other thoughts before we, before we say good night. Are we off tape yet? I, we're going to do that right now. Okay. <laughs> okay. Hold on a second here. <laughs>